Welcome to the interview series, the first ever podcast by ICMP, the Institute of Contemporary Music Performance here in London. I'm Lara, I'm your host, and I'm back with another episode featuring one of our tutors, the people that made and continue to make ICMP a pioneer when it comes to music higher education in the UK. This time I spoke with Jason Bavanandan, one of our songwriting tutors. Some of you may remember Jason from being the lead singer and songwriter of the band Battle, an indie rock phenomenon that made a bit of history in the mid-2000s. Battle released two albums, enjoyed huge chart success and recorded live sessions for national radios. They toured internationally and performed at many of the UK's biggest festivals and venues. After the band split up, Jason started his own solo career, deciding to move away from touring, something that, quote-unquote, is not made to be doing. He released the first ever cinematically released album in history, an album movie. He's going to tell a little bit more about that too. And also went on to write and co-write with a lot of young artists, something that he loves doing and keeps doing to this day, together with his teaching at ICMP. Jason and I had a great chat. We talked about the band days, so how was it to be young back in the mid-2000s, entering the music industry, being thrown at it, touring the world and the aftermath of all that, all the way to teaching and working with young people, something that seems to be a theme across all my interviews. Our tutors really love to teach young people, not just because they can pass on what they know, but also because they can get a lot in return. They learn how the new generations approach the industry and approach life as well. I hope you enjoy the interview. I loved it. If you do, share it with your friends. It's very good to see you. Yeah, nice to see. I know, right? Like see you in video call, but that's that's something. (laughs) That's something already. Where are you? Where are you up to? So I am currently at home. I'm in um, my sort of um, like my makeshift studio at home. So before the pandemic, uh, I was working across two different studios and I had a space. Then it became obvious that, you know, I couldn't really travel. So I brought most of my stuff into my uh, spare room at home in my house. And yeah, I'm constantly in danger of being found dead under loads of speakers and guitars because it's just too much stuff in here at the moment Um, but yeah it's good at the moment and just kind of I'm working I'm on uh on LA time at the moment working uh transatlantic in LA so um they're eight hours behind which means I spend half my life on London time and the other half LA time how's your sleeping pattern these days oh it's um it's okay you know I've got a lot better recently at uh, trying to be more boundary with sleep because um, before I used to do things like 12 to 16 hour days and, and actually the industry is quite uh, notorious for um, adults who still live like teenagers because no one's telling you to go to bed so you end up just working and working and working yeah um, actually you know uh, my wife's really really good with having like like respecting a routine having a routine and kind of respecting yourself by respecting that routine so eating at a good time you know not eating really late going to bed at a good time 
having a bedtime routine a bit like a child really I'm like a child so you know <laughs> I have bath time bedtime and then I just yeah so it's okay at the moment you know but it could be worse so what are you doing exactly for this project uh, so I'm working with a, a really young um, exciting artist a lot of the work I do is, is, is with, with young musicians um, um, that's just like what, what I'm drawn to and this artist uh, she is she's about to turn 12 Oh wow, that young. Okay. Yeah, she and she's a, and she's an actor. She she is from the kind of LA sort of the LA set um, of young actors, um, but not in the kind of not the kind of Mickey Mouse club. So where, which produce people like say Justin Timberlake. Yeah. Is, yeah. Like she's on the kind of on the movie side of things. So she was cast by James Cameron in uh, to be in Avatar two and Avatar three. Wow. So it's obviously a huge project. Um, and she was she was in, the, in those movies when she was six. She's one one of the lead characters, and so that was nearly six years ago. And those movies were meant to come out, I think, before the pandemic, right? But they they've been delayed. So she is a she's a really exceptional uh, person. Her her intellect and her musical and creative abilities kind of off the scale. I'd say she's probably the most prolific and the most talented songwriter I've ever worked with, and. Um, I don't say that lightly because I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of writers, but she has she has that thing which I don't think you can teach. Um, I don't know what that is, um, but you can't teach it. But I, my job with her is to kind of help her with her writing and so to try and add value with that um, and focus on the production and really help her think about what she's trying to say, what her messaging is. Um, but really, the majority of what we do is, is her. It's her ideas. So she's in LA and in California, I'm in London, and we record over we record over Zoom. We made an entire album entirely through lockdown over Zoom. And I have I control her laptop and her so she opens logic at her end, I open logic, she gives me control, and I do that all through Wi-Fi. It's it's amazing. Yeah. So talking about young people, I kind of want to go back in time and talk about when you were a bit younger. I'm not saying you're not young anymore. Oh. Just saying <laughs> you, when, you, <laughs> when you were younger, let's put it this way. So some people um, may know, I mean, I knew it, that you were in a, let's say, indie rock band. Is that fair to say? In the mid-2000s uh, uh, called uh, Battle. And you were the lead singer and songwriter, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. I would like to talk a little bit about being in a band mainly because of course it was a different time so of course you were much younger and it'd be nice to know how you look at that now with your current eyes if that makes sense but also the um the fact that there are not that many bands anymore there are bands don't get me wrong but it's it's it seems to me that especially within our environment the icmp environment as well it's just like the the current music scenario there are a lot of solo artists rather than bands so just want to hear your take on how was it back then and why do you think there aren't that many? So what's changed basically in that regard? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And uh, it's a question that bands today ask themselves all the time, you know, especially at labels. We have like label meetings and, and we discuss the kind of um, like the sheer amount, like the proliferation of solo artists. I think there, there are quite there are a number of factors in play for that. 
I think, firstly, the reason that I would say there are so many more solo artists is because we do live in a society now where we are able to function in an insular capacity. We can be more individual. I mean, if you're 15 and you get your first laptop, say you get a Mac and it's got it's got garage band on it, you can straight away start making music and you don't need a band, you know. So, so straight off the bat, you are empowered, you're independent. And you, we also, younger people nowadays spend a far greater amount of time kind of crafting their identity through influences online you know and those influences can be taken from the 1920s all the way up to you know 2020 so it's kind of like atemporal there's no sort of sense of being in a particular zeitgeist there is obviously a zeitgeist but you don't know what it is until you've moved away from it and you look back like when we look back on the 90s well oh wow the 90s really looked like something and i was i grew up in the 90s it's like it didn't feel like it had any kind of identity so that's the first thing i think it's easy to be a solo artist it's actually harder to arrange people's time and schedules and all of that. But also bands are really reliant on the kind of last gang in town mentality, like it's us against them. And when you grow up in a, that's why so many great bands came out of like small villages and small towns outside of London where you and the three other people or two other people you met were like the only people who had that mentality as you. They were the only other people who either played drums or bass. Like, you, first of all, you couldn't even find another drummer, so they had to be in the band. Um, and you all shared the same kind of ideas about art and politics and about human interaction. But nowadays, you're so connected to people. Like, if, if your drummer gets fired or leaves your band today, this morning, by the afternoon, you've already got 10 people like auditioning for the spot. You can find a drummer like that. You can find a bassist like that. So I think there was something quite special and rare about forming a band. It felt like the highest prize. To go and be a solo artist, that's pretty hard. But to find four people who all thought the same way as you, who all wanted the same thing, that was a rare prize. It was a challenge. And if you could do that, then you'd achieve something. And if you went through that process together, you were probably gonna to stick together for life, you know, like blood brothers. So I think nowadays, sometimes making things easier for people, making it more available to have access to human resources, it kind of takes away some of the challenge aspect of it, you know. Um, and you don't necessarily feel like you're the, last, you're the last gang in town. But also the third point that I wanted to add to that is that really the concept of being in a band is quite strange because you know, people are being put, the, the band formation, like say four or five guys, usually guys, you know, or people, bass, guitar, vocals, drums, it's a really antiquated model, you know, like you're playing these antique instruments, like guitars have been around, electric guitars have been around since like the 50s, um, drum kits, you know, uh, people singing, you know, the whole model of it feels quite if we're being ruthless with it, it feels really old, you know? And I think you can insonically probably say more if you take away all of that scaffolding and you're like, okay, what am I actually trying to do and say here? So in some ways bands feel, whether this is right or wrong, they feel like they're irrelevant or they feel like they're less relevant um, to a lot of people, to a lot of younger people, I mean. I completely agree with all that. You mentioned, you touched on something, which is, Everybody thinks about bands and myself as well. And it's, it's so bad and so wrong. We think about guys, four guys, three guys, just male predominantly. Especially in the mid 2000s, which is where you were in the band. And especially in the UK, 
like the main bands and the main sort of like indie rock products that were out there were made by white cis men. Mm-hmm. Barely any female. I can think of some, but you know, it's it's not the first thing that comes to mind. And not non-white people. Yeah. So yeah. How was it for you? Because, I mean, of course, you, you grew up in London, and London is, is an amazing bubble for this. It's such a great, I mean, and I say it coming from, you know, Florence, Italy, which is not London, trust me, <laughs> in terms of, like, how open-minded people are and how it's just normal to be different. You know, we're not all the same. But at the same time, you know, I, I'm, I'm assuming that being part of that scene you were just one of the guys, but like, how did it feel for you, you know, when it comes to your heritage and, and family and culture to be placed together with the, with the boys? Like, how was it for you? It's again, a really good question because sometimes I, I don't, when you're young, I was like born, bred, based in London. It's one of those rare sort of people that like anything, you know, like certain, certain cities like Rome or London, like New York, like a very small percentage of the people are actually f- from there. You know, it doesn't mean that you're any more a Londoner. It just means that you have a slightly sort of different take on things. Um, and growing up in London, I didn't realize until I looked back until I was older, that I actually, I never saw color. I never saw those things. So uh, you, young people just, they emulate their surroundings. They emulate the world they're in. And uh, we were around lots of, you know, it, it was a metropolis of different cultures, but you're absolutely right. The band, in, in the industry, the music industry, and because everyone was really in bands back then, that was the time to be in bands. It was it was run, it was ruled by, on the grass level, grassroots level, the people in bands were straight white young guys. And then in the management space and at the record company table, old straight white guys. So that's a very hard thing to change. And the music industry and the arts industry on the whole is very dominated. It's a very patriarchal, um, very white patriarchal system. And I'm not, it, I, every industry suffers from prejudice, you know, racism, sexism, ageism, all those things. But I think the music industry has a lot of unconscious, um, it places a lot of unconscious bias on straight white pretty girls and straight white pretty boys preferably you know blonde hair blue eyes that tends to be what happens and i think the previous successes of the industry aren't necessarily the people who had the most talent i think they were equally talented but i think alongside them were probably other artists who had equally good voices and equally good songs but maybe didn't conform to an idea of like the great white hope and the great white hope in the music industry is something that used to be spoken about which is like who's going to be our, our sort of our white savior you know who's going to be our next bruce springsteen or our john lennon or our elton john you know and it's a difficult thing because rock and roll is predominantly like consumed by well it's it seemed to be consumed by white people you know people of a kind of like european heritage whereas r&b we go oh yeah that's music for black people so we can sign some black people and let's make that a black person thing you know and then we have world music this horrible word world music for like people who are who are other you know who are like from africa or china or india let's just call that world music and we'll deal with those people but of course music isn't like that you know and, and tv isn't like that 
you know, like the biggest show on Netflix at the moment, Squid Games, is a Korean show. And we've seen in the last few years, like, how impactful, like, K-pop culture is. I mean, K-pop's a pretty bad word because it's like, it's just pop music, right? Why, why have we got to call it K-pop? But anyway, it's like Korean culture, Korean music. And I think now those boundaries have been broken down. But in the 90s, if you're in a band, I mean, I sometimes I wonder if one of the reasons we were signed is because some people at record labels were like, you know what? This is quite cool. We've got this band and the lead singer isn't white. So that's kind of a hook. We can market that, you know? So... It was hard. It was definitely hard. But I never saw colour growing up and you know, growing up in London. I never saw it until I was older and I started to work in the industry. And I really saw the conversations that happened around people. You know, I actually would hear A&R people say, well, well, yeah, but that girl's white. And so she, we can market her more easily. You know, really frank conversations once people have had a few drinks. And I just thought, well, that's amazing because I know you're not racist, but you, you're, well, I know you don't consciously identify with being a racist. You know, you have lots of friends who are black, lots of friends who are, you know, of, of like South Asian heritage or East Asian heritage, but you are saying stuff which is racist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't think like that anymore. Yeah. So it was hard, but it, and it's getting, I think it's getting easier, but I think we have to go through that process of, of giving space and holding space for people who don't conform to what we think a band should look like. Yeah, and I think something that you said that's really relevant is the, is how people are put in a box, you know, a box that associates your color with the genre of music that you're meant to be into. Yeah. That's yeah. really bad. I remember when I was much younger as well, you know, remember when I first saw a live performance by Block Party. I was like, this is so cool, you know? The frontman is, is black, he's great. And, it's, and I felt a bit guilty as well, because I was like, why am I attracted to this? It's because it's I'm not expecting the frontman to be, do you know, it's just, it's bad. Like it's, it's, it's within us. As you were saying, it's like unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. We wish it wouldn't make us racist, but we all are a bit. So we all have to like war actively work. But I think the industry is, is moving. Yeah slowly but it's moving yeah anyway what you said was really really interesting and I um connect to this but also in a broader sense I would like to ask you how is it to because you said that you mainly work with young people so I I'm pretty sure you can still or maybe you cannot resonate with some of the things that they go through if you think about your band days when you were like much younger but also a lot of stuff must have changed in terms of like how they approach the music industry and how they approach their career and all that. Cause it's one big thing. Of course, my space was there, but social media in the way that we, you know, live and breathe them today, we're not there. So the question basically is when you're working with young people, is it easy to put yourself in their shoes because of what you've gone through? Or is it like a very much different experience? Yeah, it's that's a and it's a powerful question because um usually as you get older, when you have more years behind you than ahead of you, which I hope isn't the case for like like for me yet, you you seem to only have um, empathy for really the last ten years of what you've done. So like when you're twenty, you can still remember what it was like to be ten, 
you know but when you're 40 you, you might struggle when you're 40 you kind of remember what it was like to be 30 i think the way our, our our memories work we can only go back so far and the further back you go you get diminishing returns uh, and i made a promise to myself when i was about i think like 14 or 15 i remember being 14 or 15 being like wow being young is super hard it's really hard you know just trying to like communicate to my parents or trying to like exp- find find ways of expressing myself in a society which didn't yet develop the kind of more like woke um, language, you know, the more enlightened language we have now, I couldn't find the phraseology or the, the ways to communicate things I want to say. And I made a promise, which is never ever forget what it's like to be this now. Like, don't, this is like, this is hard. Don't ever forget what it's like to be young. Like, you know, it's like when you're 90, you've got to remember what it's like to be. And I remember the moment of like saying that to myself, like promising myself that. And I have so much empathy and bit like um, sympathy for, for young people. I didn't have a, like a, a quote unquote traumatic experience of being young, but I have a lot of like what I think of as a kind of post post traumatic stress from that time of being in the band. And, you know, the industry back then, there was no kind of management around the well-being of people. You know, you put young people, if you give young people enough money, you give four boys a quarter of a million pounds, put them in a tour bus and send them around the world, you know, for two and a half years, things are going to go bad quite quickly. Um, Mental health issues are going to start to arise. And people who seem perfectly normal, again, quote unquote, because no one's normal. But, and if there's no one there to manage that, if a record company, if you if any other company invests money in something, it's like, this is my investment. I need to make sure I get a long-term return on that investment. So to not have people to, to really cater for that means that it's like putting a horse in a race and not feeding it properly, not watering it, not looking after it, letting it sleep in the rain, and then expecting it to win that race and the next race time after time after time. Eventually, it's just going to die and it's going to, it's going to give up. And this is the issue with like, you know, that young people face is that initially there's that in the industry i'm talking the music industry there's that that burst of enthusiasm we love what you do kid this is amazing let's sign you and then very quickly it's like right you're off on your own like figure it out you know you can't do that because young people in in the arts they're by their nature vulnerable because they are sent there they feel more sentient they feel the world so much more they have a need to express things. You know, they didn't choose to be musicians. Being a musician is impractical. It's inconvenient. It's like most of the time you ask any musician in their, in their more honest moments that they would, if they could give it all up and just be quote unquote normal and have a normal job, they'd be like, I'd give anything to not think this way, to not feel this way, you know? And you have to look after that. You have to sort of help them say, look, just you can continue to be you, but, you know, maybe we can build some, some, um, some wellness structuring around you, you know, to help you navigate this crazy thing called life. Because life is hard enough if you are, if you have a normal job, right? It's hard enough, right? You have a mortgage, some kids, you get married, whatever. If you do all those heteronormative things, imagine if you then feed into that, the fact that you're not heteronormative and you don't choose like the most obvious path. How hard is your life then going to be? It's going to be very hard. Um, and this is why young people will always have my heart. And I always choose to work with young people because not because I'm going to fix them or do anything. It's just that because I never had that help. No one ever helped me like that. I had to figure everything out on my own. And I made good decisions and I made bad decisions. And being successful in life is about making good decisions for yourself. And if you can do anything to mitigate that for young people and just not tell them what to do, 
but speed up their thinking process, you know, which is what good therapy is. It helps you make the answer yourself. If you can do anything, anything just to help them with that, then I, I, I feel good about that. It makes me feel happy about how I use my time. So yeah, young people are, they are the future. It sounds cheesy, they are the future. Uh, Whitney Houston said it, I believe the children are the future. It's true. It's funny because it's true. And um, I think if you have the ability to pass or pay forward any kind of wisdom or knowledge, then I think in the music industry, you need to do that. That's a very powerful message. I agree with that. We're going we're gonna to go back to teaching in a bit because you, you also said something about being on your own and um, not necessarily having that help and also like being on your own in the sense that you made your own choices and you, you went for stuff that you had no guidance for. What I'm thinking exactly is your um, 2015 um, work which was the first cinematically released album in history. I remember reading this interview where you said that you didn't know much about it and had no funding to go ahead with your project, but you just decided to go with it and you made it happen in the end. So I just want to know more about this approach. Just uh, want to know if this is something that you, it's just in you, you know, or was it just a one-off, but also... It can be very scary to just like jump into something that you know you want to do, but you don't have necessarily validation from others, support, funding. That's a big one. You know, of course, nowadays you can record a song and do a lot of stuff, as you were saying, in your room, on your laptop, but not everyone has access to the same resources. So thinking that you didn't have the expertise or funding and you just went for it and did it. It's, it's pretty amazing, but it can be also scary. So yes, how, how was it? It was, it was terrifying. And you know, if I'd known then all the things I know now, I wouldn't have done it. And this is why time travel is a bad thing. You know, the, the benefit of hindsight is like a fool's wisdom because it's like we're all rich with hindsight. But here's, here's the thing, right? Every relationship is predicated on the potential or the fantasy of what something could be. You know, we don't have a crystal ball to say, when I meet this person, what's going to happen in five years? You're just excited by the unknown. And that's how musicians work. That's how those first bands you form when you're 15, 16, regardless of if you break up after one summer holiday, they're always the best bands you were ever in or the music you first started making when you were learning music because you didn't know anything and because you didn't know anything, you didn't know all the things that could go wrong. You just focused on all the things that could go right. The problem with art when it becomes a bit boring is when it becomes business as usual. I've made one album. I've done this thing. Let's just do the same thing again. It's like, we know it works. Let's just do it again. And on the one hand, there's a lot of success with that because you're going to minimize risk. You could control the spending. You know exactly what you need to do. You probably get it done quite quickly. But what it gives with one hand, it takes away with the other. And the thing it takes away is all the fear all the unknown, all the slight anxiety. And that's, what, that's, that's attraction. That is the, the core of attraction when you meet someone across a crowded room and you don't know anything about them, but something in you says, go for it, just talk to them, like do it. You, know, you never know where this could go. And so making that record was, you know, I was burnt out from touring and my, my publisher at the time, I was signed to, I moved from EMI to Sony ATV and they said, have you got a new record? And I said, um, said yeah well I want, I want to make a new record but I refuse to tour ever again I'm not going to tour because it, it really 
I'm not built for touring. It really ruined me. And um, and they said, well, how are you going to do it? And honest to God, I, I didn't know I was going to say what I was going to say, but I said, I'm going to release it as a film. I just said it because I needed something to say because I was on the spot. And as soon as I said it, they could have said to me, that's ridiculous, get out of my office. But there was like a moment, a, li- a tiny moment of silence where my A&R guy thought about it and he went, that sounds like a great idea. Because at the time, in 2015, no one had done it, you know? Actually, we were talking about doing it in 2010, so it actually started in 2010. It just didn't exist. It came out before Beyonce had, had done all her cinematic works. So the concept of releasing a movie as a film, as an, having an album movie, it just didn't exist. It was a crazy, ridiculous, quite stupid idea. And I just said it because I needed to say something and I knew I wasn't going to tour. I couldn't face touring. And when you put yourself under immense pressure on the spot, your brain just goes to a place that you can't plan for, you know, and you just say these things. And then five years later, I was like still working on this project. And, and it things it came out because I'd said it and my word is my bond and it had to come out and it, and it was cinematically released. But if I'd known all this stuff, you know, I wouldn't have done it. And so it was good that I didn't know that. And it was good that I was scared, but it was also good that I was very naive and ignorant. That really helped the process. So do you think this is part of your approach to things still? Like the sort of like, I want to learn something. I want to get into something. I'm just going to do it. Or do you, or now, do you feel different because of your age? And Hmm. do you know what I mean? Like, is it still something that you would, I don't know if you yeah. decided you wanted to go into, I don't know, just composing for commercials. Would you just go for it or would you rather just stay with the low risk options kind of thing? Yeah. Well, the thing is, that is a consequence of age. You know, as you get older, uh, you just get wiser. And again, it's a double edged sword because you start to understand, oh, hang on a minute, things could go wrong. Uh, you might end up blowing a load of cash on something that that's not going to pay off. So there's an element of like risk awareness or risk management creeps in, which is actually, to me, that is the fundamental difference between adults and children. Children were like, run across the road. Adults are like, no, 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 you might get run over. That, that to me is a fundamental difference between what separates a child from an adult. But the thing is, we can't live like children. But then who wants to always be walking around wearing a crash helmet and knee pads the whole time through their life? So musicians are like in a state of arrested development, like really good artists have that ability to still think like a child, which is like, I don't know anything about this. Somebody asked me to compose for a film. Nah, we'll just do it and see what happens. You know, because you have no concept that anything can go wrong. You're only focused on things going right because you're so naive. What could possibly go wrong? You know, it's me. I'm doing it. Of course, it's going to be fine. But as you get older, you start to see the limitations of your abilities. You know, you're good at certain things and not less good at other things. And I kind of wish I didn't have that as much. But because I'm conscious of that, it still allows me to say, okay, we're going to work on this project. I have very little experience on that aspect of it, but I'm sure it'll be fine. Let's just do it, see what happens, you know? And that is like quite a childish thing to do because the adult part of me is going to say, why don't you just bring someone in who's who's done this? Who knows it? Who knows it? Who knows it? But and maybe it's a kind of narcissism or an arrogance, but I really believe that some of the best music, some of the best art is made by people who choose to kind of, jump into something and learn as they're doing it they're like Mm -hmm. well the other person did it so i'm gonna do it you know yeah it can't be that hard that person isn't anyone special really they just they just committed themselves and they brought a lot of passion to the project so we could do that and we could we could see where this takes us but it's quite childish thing you know it's quite a childish thing to do um but 
being an artist, I think, is about embracing your child, your, your inner child, and carrying it in front of you the whole time. But being successful at being an artist is knowing when to put that aside. So somebody like, I don't know, who's done it for a long time, Elton John or sort of someone, or, you know, uh, Barbara Streisand or whatever, you know, anyone who's done it for a long time, they have this ability to kind of turn it off and then and they kind of repress it a little bit when they're doing you know, an important interview or something, or they're talking to their children or grandchildren. And then it kind of comes back up again because they can't hide it for too long. Um, but that's the thing you have to manage, that, that, that child part of you. That's the tricky bit. Yeah, yeah, it's very tricky. So actually now going back to taking care of yourself and your well-being, of course now there's, there's much more uh, awareness about this overall and um one of the things that i assume may happen to musicians and i say assume because i'm not a musician myself is that because music is just part of who you are it's not just your job right i can finish a work day and think about something else you know sometimes i may struggle whatever but you know i can sort of like separate myself from my job it doesn't define me mm. i think with being an artist is is it's difficult because you're trying to make a living out of something that's part of you and out of something that will always be part of you, whether you'll be in a band still or you'll be producing still. Music is something that you see differently than just playing it while you're driving. Do you know what I mean? What are the things that you do to keep sane and to just save some mind space for stuff that's not just connected to work? Are you able to do that? Because that's also a question. Not everyone necessarily does. Um, I mean, I suppose that the short answer is I can't. I, I find it very hard to. I'm, I've been playing music since I was, I've been learning music since I was seven years old. It's, I don't ever remember not being able to play an instrument. So for me, it's so, it's such a big core part of my fabric of my, my like my genes, you know, like my own personal genetics that it's very hard to disentangle like music from me. Um, it would be like, again, it sounds really like cliche, but it would be like asking me to just not breathe as much in the day. I would get to the end of the, the, end of the day feeling a bit like ill, you know. Um, uh, my mix engineer has a really funny phrase. He says, yeah, I have hobbies. They just all happen to be music, you know. So when he's not, when he's not mixing records, you know, that's, that's his professional job, he'll be learning the piano or learning something like you know some other instrument or learning to score strings or something i think for people like us you know in music because there's so much of it there's so many bits to it that you can have um you can have like distractions and hobbies which are still connected to music but they aren't the act of playing music so for me the thing that actually i think saved my life saved my mental health was teaching um was coming to uni and doing something where i wasn't in a studio for 16 hours like with guitars and synths and a vocalist. It wasn't that kind of thing, but I was still working within the space of music. And, but it prevented me from doing these crazy 16 hour days. And that really saved me, you know, and I didn't plan on doing it. It was an accident that I, I ended up, you know, like, like lecturing and like, I came in as a guest lecturer to talk about one thing once at ICMP in 2015. And I just stayed, you know, doing a few hours every now and again. But I don't have hobbies. You know, I, I've tried to do that. I've tried to really get into things that are like parallels, like cooking, which is very creative, or like gardening, you know, running. And they last, they last for a while. I try and convince myself. 
but then very quickly I'll be cooking and I'll be thinking about bass lines or I'll be running and I'll be thinking about synth patches, you know. And so it, then it becomes me trying to repress something. And I become very repressed, you know, and it feels crazy. So what I'm trying to now do is have the sort of more boundary approach to being in the studio where I do other things that are connected to it, but I can do them while I'm walking or I can do them while I'm standing up or away from the studio. But it's very hard. I, I really struggle with it. Fair enough. <laughs> and uh, you mentioned teaching. So we, we're going back around to it and how it's, um, it's helped you to, um, you know, what you were saying, just focus on, on music, but in a different way. So different headspace. I would also like to know how does it fit with your personal development as well and with your career? Because, I mean, of course, you, you work with young artists, so teaching young people must be inspiring for you as well. So you give as much as you take from them, probably, because that's also what you do in your job. So, yeah, I just want to know your take on this. Like, how does it fit within your professional and personal development? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I, I believe that, I really honestly believe I get more from them. I take more from them than I, I give to them because um, those, my students over the years are responsible for keeping me sane and they have collectively kind of saved my life. They saved me going like cuckoo. You know, I would have gone do lally a long time ago. If I didn't have that structure, and the expectation to turn up, just I had to turn up and and be there for them and help them with their problems like their musical questions or you know sometimes sometimes it was a, a more uh, like personal issue of how they were conducting themselves you know and it was a kind of what it was almost like proto parenting you know like a form of having to put someone else before yourself and in doing that and trying to help them formalize their musicality it really helps you crystallize your own understanding of what you know you, you come away from that thinking i actually know more stuff than I realized that I knew. I know quite a lot about this stuff because when you're learning it, especially if you're self-taught, it's very nebulous and it's very abstract and it feels quite oblique. Like, you know, I, I have no syllabus in my head of everything I know. But then when you have to then try and teach some of that to somebody else, your brain naturally starts to kind of organize it and file it into understandable chapters. And that helps you to appreciate what you've done. It's quite good. It's beneficial for your, for your own state of mind. Um, and I think that being around like young artists, whether they're students or whether they're young artists who are on an artist development project or they've got working on their first record, and you know your your focus is always not how much how how much money can we make out of this. It's literally how can we present you and position you in the way that is most idiosyncratic to you, the way that is most you. It's, it's got to be one hundred percent you. And going through that process time and time again reaffirms to me that we all need to do that as people we need to try and be our best selves like what is the most 100 version of us that we can be you know and try and find what that is because of course it's always changing it isn't a fixed thing and um that's my job really it's not if you strip away all the talking about reverbs and delays and chord sequences and lyrics it's not about any of that stuff it's about your intentionality like what you're trying to do and your positionality and those two things your intent and your positioning that's everything in life i mean you can extrapolate that for life you know where am i going with my life what do i what do i want to do with my time who am i spending my time with and it raises big questions and it helps you to get to those answers a little bit more quickly so um 
it's the, the, the uh, something about young people, not necessarily in their age, that makes them vulnerable. Because you can have an older artist who is still like a young artist, but generally speaking, it tends to be people who are a young artist and they are physically a young person, like they're 18, 19, 25 or something. Um, they don't realize the things they're teaching you, but they are. They're constantly, whether it's new music or whether it's a new way of approaching the world because their society is different and their politics are different. They just, um, just teach you something that you can't learn yourself. So I'm very grateful to them. I feel very privileged to be in that space with them. They help you with that promise that you made to yourself to never forget what it's like to be a, a young person, I guess. Because, I mean, you get older, but you're still exposed to the new 18 and 19 and 20 and 21-year-olds, you know? It's yeah. always there. So it's a, it's a great reminder of what it's like to be that age, but also what's changed since you were that age, which is important to remember as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's amazing when you get to an age where young people, because we have a, in society, we always have a nostalgia for yesterday. You know, things were always better 10 years ago. And you get to a point yeah. where young people start to dress the way you remember young people dressing when you were young, when you were you know, yeah. a kid. Born yeah. in the 80s, growing up in the 90s, it was weird to see young people. They start to celebrate this kind of, this era. And it's, and I thought, God, you, you know that you become an adult when young people start to, revisit something that was just the way you dressed you know it's like wow i remember being a kid and flares are really big and my mom saying to me oh yeah i remember in the 70s like all of us wore flares and i was like thinking god you're so old you know and when i see young people wearing you know like stuff from the 90s yeah i'm like wow i'm so old <laughs> to us it was just like clothes that's it it's just clothes it was just no meaning attached fashion. yeah yeah exactly no meaning at all no meaning you know it was all new stuff it was all you know really yeah. new but they do, yeah, like you say, you know, every year we get older, but they stay the same, they're the same age. But of course, the world is completely different. That's great. Well, I got to the end of my, uh, my question list. So this would, I mean, I would probably keep talking the whole morning. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, I appreciate it.